The Builders, the Dailim who created movements and shaped our world. Presented by Gedalia Gutentag and Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Galinsky. Welcome back to The Builders, listeners near and far. And welcome back to you, Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Galinsky. Usually I tell you it's a pleasure to be with you, Rabbi Gedalia. But at this time, we're sitting here together for different reasons than the normal ones. Indeed, it is a more somber time, and that gives us the opportunity to record a more somber episode of The Builders, which uh, obviously deals with the Kedali Israel and the world that they built today. But we've seen since the beginning of this war, these horrible attacks on Sunchas Torah, we've seen that uh, what people want is they want chizuk. One of the major sources of chizuk that people go straight to is what do the Kedali Israel say? Here at The Builders, we're going to we're taking liberty to do a special uh, couple of episodes in which we take license with our own concept and look at the Gadol Yisrael of the 20th century and see what they had to say about wartime and times of crisis and times of sorrow. And so here at the Builders, we're going to do our little part in a non-systematic way to go and try and get those anecdotes and psokim and halacha and aspects of Hashkafa that they left us with the great figures of the 20th century and talking about the Gadol Yisrael and war and, and crisis and sorrows. It takes us back to the year 1904. Those who are students of world history will obviously know the First World War. But one, there were a number of conflicts led up to the First World War. One of them uh, was a terrible precursor and forerunner to that dreadful conflict was in 1904 broke out. It's called the Russo-Japanese War. It was then Tsarist Russia and Imperial Japan. And they were actually two empires going in different directions. The uh, Imperial Russia was on its way down. Imperial Japan was on its way up and they start, they fought, they had a horrible conflict a couple of years in the Russian Far East in a place called Manchuria, which is northern China, actually. What exactly was the conflict about? Landmass? L- land and it was access to ports. This is a golden example of how learning our own history tells you about bits of general history that we didn't know about. It seems to have been the Russian Empire had been, for, you know, since the 16th century, had been expanding eastward, and they wanted a port on the Pacific. The one that they had was frozen during the winter. It was only open in the summer. So they wanted a one that was in that area of the world. But Japan was then expanding. It expanded, and eventually it only dawned kind of on Western consciousness when they expanded, tried to expand all the way to Pearl Harbor and attack the United States. But it wasn't they something expanding else. in the means that they wanted to capture more islands because Japan itself is surrounded by ocean. Correct. But the reason it sort of impinges on Jewish consciousness and history was in the year 1904, because in that year, as I said, Tsarist Russia gets into a battle with them, a, a major war with them. And it was a precursor, a forerunner of the World War One because they started to use mechanized warfare. It was machine guns, trenches, and into that horrible, frozen, distant landscape of warfare, right? We're talking about China. Thousands of Gera Hasidim ended up being shipped because they were in Poland. Poland was part of the Tsarist Empire. They were shipped over there and drafted. And obviously, they tried everything to get out of it. Whose battle was this? Manchuria. What has it got to do with the Gera Hasid from Warsaw? Who governs Manchuria? And yet, they couldn't escape it. And we know thousands of them were drafted off there. And there's pictures from the lithographs from then, which I just saw before, never seen. They were passed around at the time about Jewish soldiers leaving home and going to the front. And they were discovered from the year 1904. And in those pictures, those early pictures, you see a Hasidish family saying goodbye to a soldier in Russian army uniform with a beard. And what a terrible thing it was. And we know that it was horrific conflict. 
as I said, it was the beginning of trench warfare. Well, the Russians never were mocked with so much about the lives of their soldiers. Correct. Till, t- till today, you have exactly the same concept of warfare, meaning you have literally cannon fodder. We see the same thing. You can throw in 50, 60, 70,000 troops and Mother Russia will supply some more. And not only that, Russia then, the Russian Empire was very badly equipped and Japan was the rising power and they were... They had no. They didn't have food. They didn't, weren't clothed properly, and it was freezing. And imagine the horror of these soldiers there. And we have a record of that because they wrote themselves what happened. Shlomo Yosef writes this, but I think our colleague Sir Groweist sent me says the Gary Rebbe the Leif Simcha used to speak about this often and recall these times. And he said this happened many times. Thousands of Hasidim were there, and they went to the Rav Yehuda Arileb Alto. The Svasemis of Gare came into there and near Warsaw. And they'd be dressed in their army uniform and he'd bench them. He'd, he'd give them a bracha before they... And it was a terrible thing, you know, the, the crying and, and, and everything before they left, going to this distant place. And, and what they said was that for the duration of that war, the Svasemes, the great Svasemes, would not sleep on a bed. He'd just lay on the floor, covered himself with a coat or put a coat underneath him. And that was how he did. And he was, after a couple of years, it was towards after that war, not long after the Svasemus was Nifta, a young, and the, I think the Avni Nezah said about him, it's because his heart was broken over these Hasidim. I'd like to add on a comment over here. Yep. I don't know if you're following it, but in the family first, there's an exchange of letters in the last few weeks about how much to expose people to the horrors of what's going on on the Israeli front. Yeah. And some people were, were saying, you know, what we can do is Torah, mitzvahs, tefillah, because that helps the people. But why should we be concerned of curtailing our pleasures, like what is it giving them, right? And that bothered me because we know from the G'daylem, I'm, I'm trying to find an early source for that, but we know from the G'daylem, like you're telling me now from the Sfasemes, that the concept of Noise Ba'oil does not only include davening and trying to help them with schuyas and mitzvahs, but actually feeling, your personal feeling of their tsar is something that has to be done as well. Yeah. And this comes out clear from that story. Yeah. And as I said, there's one thing that jumped out to me over there. It's really a really beautiful thing. He said that he had this an exchange of letters. The Svasemis, you know, he wrote letters to Tzachsid and they wrote back to him. And they would describe the horrific conditions there and their struggles. And in one letter that's, that's, that's recorded, it was a letter from one Tzachsidim from a place called Ostrovtsa. This famous Chassid, for the famous Rebbe Ostrovtsa. Yeah, who was a mathematician. Wow. So the Chassid was from Ostrovtsa, and he sent a letter, and it was a letter of a pilpul. It was a Direi Halacha that he'd written in the trenches there. It was something that some Rabbi Yonah some way had some problem with it, and he wrote to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe wrote back to him in the most beautiful words. He wrote from the Pesach, it says, Ha'idoisi bochem ha'yoyim esashamayim esa'oretz. The simple translation is, Ha'idoisi, the notion of witnessing. I call the heaven and earth as witness. Right. And the Svasemis wrote, what a beautiful chat he said, they call the Adi. Haidoisi comes from the, the, the word jewelry, Adi, which is jewelry. In other words, you are an adornment. You who learn Torah in, this, in these conditions are an adornment, Hashem says to Shemaim Varet. What a very beautiful. By the way, the yeah. source that, that Adi means a necklace yeah. is from Matan Torah. After the Chait and Chet Egel, so it says, es That's, that's right. the source. Edi means the Tachshit. That story and popped out now as soon as we thought about the war and the chizuk that Gedali Israel gave. Talk about the chizuk, the emunah that they're able to give. Their greatness is to be able to encourage people with meaningful things. Because in wartime, I think part of the reason we can't listen to politicians is because they, they have slogans, right? 
and it's just empty. And people see that they're really empty. It's and really there's fascinating nothing. to see when you see it. I personally saw a short video of uh, the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, Rav Amal, yeah. coming to the soldiers. And the way he connects to them and the empathy that he gives over. And he starts davening with them. Mm-hmm. And what's shocking to see is that the majority of the soldiers there are not wearing yarmulkes. And they're flowing along with him like the Svarni Nusach of saying Tehillim. And they're all carrying along with him. And you see what they're looking for and how much chizik it gives them. Yeah, I think that takes us straight to the, the Chavetz Chaim. Because when we're talking about Rabbonim who dealt with soldiers and war, the first thing you have to put on the table is the Chavetz Chaim's work is safe in Machne Yisrael, right? Machne Yisrael was written in 1882, if I'm not mistaken, and the introduction of the Chavetz Chaim writes, it's halachas and it's hashkafa for a soldier, and he writes for the soldiers being drafted into the Polish and Russian army. You have to put in this Hebrew of the Chavetz Chaim into context, because yeah. the Chavetz Chaim wrote many swam that we don't know about. We know about Chavetz Chaim and Shemir Saloshan and Mishnabura. Right? But if you look in the Kol Kisve Chavetz Chaim, you'll see... Which I did, which I have. <laughs> you see tens of Sfarim, small pamphlets, bigger ones. On Kachim, we know, Likute Aloches, right? Yeah. The Sikum of the Aloches of Kachim. But many of them are not known. And I think I heard from his grandson that what differentiated the Chavetz Chaim from other G'doylem is the Chavetz Chaim only wrote things that he thought that the Tzibur need. Because that was his L'Shem Shamayim that mm-hmm. was burning inside him. That's what brought about this. And Chavetz Chaim once I gave Musa to someone. I don't remember who it was, but he said, well, you don't think I could have become a big guy in so-and-so? I could have also done it. But I harnessed all my energy, all my Torah energy, to do things that Klai Yisrael need. And one of these things was Machne Yisrael. And the reprint, the current, is like a four-volume brown Kalkas Chavetz Chaim. So it, in this edition... It contains the Machne Yisrael. It was the print that was uh, printed in 1943, and that was by the Chavetz Chaim's son-in-law of... Remendel. Remendel's ex. It's of Hillel's father. Oh, I see. So far, Remendel's ex. And he's writing in America. He says this is for soldiers going into the American army. But there's one thing. There's two points, actually. It's the Machne Yisrael, where he goes in later, and he talks about when you're actually going out to battle. And it was very moving for me when I, I saw this. I've, I've printed them out over here. And it's because the Chavetz Chaim is talking about two points. One of them is saying Shema Yisrael Yichud Hashem. The other one is about Machlekes. And they both struck home because what we're seeing in, in the last few weeks, we're seeing, you know, as the soldiers are out there in the front lines and ready to go into Gaza. And you're saying there's the Kabbalah Malchashem And, you know, we saw Reuven Elbaz, Rav Grossman from Migdal Emek, and as soldiers putting their hands on each other's heads, they don't have any kipot or whatever they are. And many of them are secular. And the Kabbalos Omar HaShemayim going on there is unbelievable. It's like something like Yom Kippur night. I think this is unique. I mean, I don't remember it from other wars. That's what I wanted to ask. I've been wondering that. Is there any way to track this? And this is, relates to the fact that the country is much becoming more traditional. That's what I feel. I mean, there were stories here and there in Yom Kippur war and things like that, but not the mass events that are happening now involved in Chizuk and things like that. Yeah. At least I don't remember things it's like right. that. It's very interesting whether, you know, there's... So the Chavetz Chaim says... You know, you were yeah. t- mentioning Saul Grobais. He told me people were afraid of Hadata and Tzal. Religious coercion. Right. right. That, well, that was for, for the last few years. We kept yeah. hearing every time so a religious says, command... I want to calm anything. everyone down. Yeah. It already happened. <laughs> <laughs> too late. So the Chavetz Chaim writes over here. He says... In, the Chavetz Chaim's Rebbe was Rav Nochumka of Harodna. Harodna being Grodna, right? There's like in Russian, Hitler is Gitler. So... And Hungary is Gungary. So he says, 
Rav Nochum Harodna, who was his Rebbe, he advised our brothers going out to battle in, in the army. He says they should say, they should reach Yitzaku, they should cry out before they go out to battle, Psukim, to describe about the Yichud Hashem. For example, the Apostle Shema Yisrael, Hashem Hu Elikim, like we say on, 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 on Yom Kippur, similar ones. And he says there's a great Ta'eles, has a great, uh, it'll achieve something. For two reasons. One of them, the Zuchus of Am Yisrael, it will bring, you know, the merit of Am Yisrael, the, the Makabalo Malcha Shemaim, and be saved in that merit. And then he says, obviously, the remedy to that is that when the soldiers go out, as described in the Torah and Devarim, he says, when a Jewish army goes out, he says, Shema Yisrael, I'll say, even if the only Zuchus is that the Am Yisrael, that they have said Kriya Shema in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, that's enough to save them. So the idea is, there we see in Chazal already. So the Chavetz Chaim is, is saying, Kabbalos Oymach Hashemayim, and also, obviously, Kabbalos Oymach Hashemayim could just before a person uh, passes away is, is, is a special thing. And the second point that moved me over here, Rabbi Ephraim, was the idea he talks about Machlokas. And there's something so powerful that has happened in the last, since Simchas Torah, which is everyone, Israeli society in general, it's almost like even secular people are talking in a way that is totally metaphysical about the series of events, the tremendous blitz in Israeli society and hatred that culminated in the dreadful scenes that we saw in Tel Aviv on, on, on Yom Kippur with, you know, the terrible ransacking a minion, shocking scenes. And just a few days later, the attack that was so horrific that it united these sides, right? And we're seeing signs all over the Yachad Nenatzeach, we're going to win together and uh, whatever, Amistral Chai and all this stuff. There's no left or right and they're the, never going to the, divide the, us. The, the most glaring example was, it was printed in this week's magazine, I think, it was that they were looking for... That's Mishpacha magazine, please. Right, right. <laughs> they were looking for a place to dive in, like the volunteers, the Haredi volunteers, yeah. who were for Hatzola, who were volunteering up in the North Front because the medics over there had to go down south. So they were like supplementing the medical personnel in, in the north. So they were all from people from Zaka. And Rev Shabbos, they, they said, we need a place to take a shower. So they gave them the Shomer Hatzair, like bunkhouse. Unbelievable. Take a shower. And then they asked, can we dive in there? Mm-hmm. said, yeah, for sure. And that's their base now. So in the Shomer Hatzair bunkhouse, you're having now a shul and a... Uh, a center for religious soldiers. But what has struck me, Rabbi Prime, is how much each different group in their own language, in their own lexicon, they are saying the same thing. From people that talk about the Yad Hashem, how it was, but you listen to secular people, and they're basically saying that it's almost like the world is talking to them in some way, that it's gone from this terrible division to the unity over here. And that is the Chavetz Chaim. And, and, and sometimes you see all these stuff being said, and, and I have a cousin who's a soldier on the Gaza border, or maybe in Gaza, um, now, and he said that he's in his platoon, there's 22 soldiers, he and another uh, soldier are, are religious, and the others are not. And they were talking about this at the beginning of the war. Literally, they said the unity, he said, we were on different sides of a deep, social, you know, split in society. And some of the secular soldiers, they were saying that, look, we were split. The question is, are we going to remain together or not? He told them the following thing, he says, the famous marshal of the, is a, a Rebbe who has a chassid who, who goes off. And this chassid, you know, he starts dressing more and more modern and, you know, whatever it is. But a month before Yom Naram, when he comes back to the rabbi, he starts growing his beard and his beard again. He puts on the lavush and he comes back. As the years go by, he just feels like a fraud. And see, so he goes back one year, he decides, that's it. I am who I am. I'll present myself to the rabbi, right? That's a chassid. He's still like, he still goes go to the rabbi. But he goes back to the rabbi and he's dressed in his, you know, shaven head. And he's dressed, he doesn't wear a yamukan. And the rabbi says to him something to the effect that, you know, 
up to now, you think that you were a fraud? No, this is you. I believe the rest of the year you're a fraud. The real you comes out when you uh, of the other one, which is a nice maizala. And so the Chovetz Chaim writes about the second thing that should happen when the soldier is literally about to go out to battle. He says, "Gam tzorak be'itim elim." That times liyazorim oid me'avoyim machlokes. Be very careful not to have machlokes. It's always, uh, he says, always a great avera and, and brings destruction to the world. But it's particularly in the Midas Hadin when there's Midas Hadin in the world, which machlokes brings. It's and, and obviously there's wartime. It can save. The, the I want to bring a muscle to that. I hope you'll be Michael me. Michael. And, and I hope the the listeners will be Michael me. But as a child, I read one of the Dr. Seuss books. You know what I'm talking about? That's basically part of the from lexicon, I think. It's. <laughs> <laughs> so in any case, there's a story that I don't remember the name of the book, okay? But there's a story there. The hat in the mat. There's a king that sits with his throne on top of all the frogs or something. I don't know what it was. They're all sitting there, right? And then all of a sudden, the ones on the bottom start feeling, you know, we want some independence or something, right? And they start moving away, and all of a sudden, the whole thing comes down. So we have a pasuk, yeah. towards us. He ducks himself towards us as a melech only when it's asef roshayom. It's not as like a kazgula type of thing that machlekes destroys things for us. It's the midah samalchus of Baruch Hu, which is the midah, you know, the Svarim talk about it, that the midah that brings out the good of HaKadosh Baruch Hu into mm-hmm. the world is called midas malchus. Rav Pinkus talks about it in his Sefer Shabbos Malchus. Like a melech has the tools to implement right. things. So mal- midas malchus, midas malchus to, yeah. is what brings out HaKadosh Baruch Hu's toiv into the world. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells you beferish in the Pasuk. He says, when is midas malchus going to work? When it's asif, when, they, when there's achdus, when there's no achdus, the midah doesn't work anymore. Yeah, if you look through hundreds of years of, of Jewish history, long before there was a state of Israel, when you talk about Jews and the army, then it was Jews and foreign armies. And it was, you know, it would have been the Ottoman Turks or the Russian army or many different ones. And one of the major questions that came up there, obviously, was evading the draft, which sometimes you may not have wanted to go and serve in the Russian Far East. And the Malamed Lahoyal has a tshuva over there, which is Rodovitsky Hoffman in Berlin, about that he says that you're not allowed to. And therefore, on that basis, it was accepted that Jews were drafted. My own, actually, my great-grandfather served in the Austro-Hungarian army in the First World War, and he was shot through the neck and missed his windpipe by a little fraction. Wow. And he went on to live to a ripe old age. So it goes to show you can survive a hit in the neck. That's definitely. But there are other aspects of Rav Would you like to share it with us and the listeners? I had the privilege several years ago uh, interviewing elderly Yid at that time. He, was, he had his 80th birthday while I was interviewing him the night of the interview. During the interview? Yeah, it was hell. and and it was a very interesting interview because I think he was the highest ranking Haredi who who ever uh, I think he he received the title of Zgan Aluf I think. Which army? Let us be clear. This is not the Tsarist <laughs> army. This is the IDF. Okay, uh, just to be. So Aluf is the highest besides the Rav Aluf. Which Rav Aluf is, is the is, the Ramatkal, which yeah. is the chief of staff. So the next under that is the Aluf. And in Israel, by the way, we don't have as many fancy titles. In, in America, you get like four-star generals, three-star generals, right. none of this. You just have generals. Yeah, there's the Rav Aluf, the Alufim, which is the headquarters of the, the army command, are made up of Alufim. And under that is Zgan Aluf, or Tat Aluf or Zgan Aluf. I don't, I'm not such a mumkh in that. But I think he was the highest-ranking Haredi. Now, how do you get to it? What did he do? He was a, a head of the Rabbanut. He was a Hevener Yeshiva Bacher. Yeah. And uh, Rabbi Gohan was the rabbi of the army. By the way, I want to put in parentheses over here. The criticism against Rabbi Gorin, I learned this later on in life, was later on in life, at the end of his job in the army, and moved on to be the chief rabbi of the country. 
But as a chief rabbi of the army, people were pleased with him because he was very tough. Can I add a parenthesis to your parenthesis? Just as my wife's grandfather, he should, he should be well, he's a uh, Mr. David Rothschild lives in Zurich. And he was at one time the head of the Swiss Board of Deputies and was a prominent member of the uh, Swiss, the IAG, the Yakshikela there in Zurich. And he used to make every year for the, mo- the local moisters, he used to make a dinner and fundraise like a black tide dinner. They would bring in some VIP and they brought in lots of different VIPs. And one time they brought in Rav Gorin and he had turned up in his beautifully tailored army, um, uniform. army uniform. And my wife's grandmother said to him, what are those wings on the uniform? He says, this shows I'm a paratrooper. So they said, she said, well, why does the chief rabbi need to be a paratrooper? <laughs> he said, listen, this is how it was. He says that when the army was set up, they arranged and we were able to bring kashras, although it was very secular. We talked about how the army is far less secular. Right. Back then, it was a chiddush to bring kashras to the IDF. Right. It was um, in his chus, by the way. That, that How did it work? So he said, and this is exactly it. He went to the all different units and they said, look, you've got religious soldiers here. We have to have kosher kitchen, etc." He said there was one unit in the army that was so secular, there was not one religious soldier. That was the Tzan Khanim, that was the paratroopers. And indeed, the paratroopers, until 73, they were overwhelmingly drawn from the kibbutzim. Mm-hmm. They were the elite and they went to the Tzan Khanim. And so he said, but it can't be. We can't have a unit in the Jewish army, which is not kosher. So he went to the commanding officer. He said, yeah, what can I do? There's no co- religious soldiers, don't it? He says, if you have one religious soldier, would you kosher the kitchen? He said, yes. He said, okay, I'm that religious soldier. <laughs> he joined. He was not a, not a young man. He joined. He did his, he did his said, and, and he said to my wife's grandmother, he said, how is it to jump? He said, yeah, it was very scary to yeah. jump out. And then when he did it, they all carried him on the shoulders. And he says, I became a paratrooper. And that is why this cash is something. So as again, like I was saying before, in the army, he did a lot of good things. The problem was later on in civilian life, we wanted to transfer his power of authority to civilian life against all, all the Gdolim at that time. That's where the problem started with the Hetem Amzerim and all that. And then it was an all-out war against his Zach. So uh, in any case, so this person who I interviewed was a Heavenly Shulabacher, and he wanted to apply for a position in the army rabbinate. So they said, okay, go talk to Rabbi Goren. And he says he walked into the room, and he said it was like, like Putin. You know, it's a gigantic table, right? Rabbi Goren is sitting at the beginning <laughs> of the table. And you just walk in, you feel like this tiny little ant <laughs> walks into the giant's room. And he says, yeah, what do you want? He screams at the end, what do you want? He says, I want to apply for a job in the chief rabbinate. So he says, so what do you want to talk to me about? So he says, I have a shtickel in zvachim. So he says, a shtickel in zvachim? Come sit down next to me. <laughs> Start talking. He was a massive lamba. <laughs> yeah, he was a massive lamba. And he gave him a shtickel in zvachim, and he hired him. On the basis of Shtekel and Zvachim. Yeah. Although it's the least practical aspect of... Right. So then, and he climbed the ladders, and he became the Zgan of the chief rabbi of Tzal. And he carried that title until he was Nifter. And then he became the Roshiv in Shalavim. His name was Rabbi Avram Moshe Avidan. My connection with him was because my father was a Manal in Shalavim for many years, and he was the Roshiv in Shalavim. Mm-hmm. And that's how we became connected. And I knew that he had a very good connection with Rabbi Yashiv, about Shilas that had to do with the army, which was very surprising because we asked him, like, how did you get to ask Rav Liash of Shilas? You know, the other rabbis, the chief rabbis or something like that, you know, the other rabbis you can ask. He says, I, I went shopping. I went shopping. I had these real serious Shilas in the army, and he was the head, he head of the halacha department in the army. And I went shopping, and I couldn't find a gadol who would give me answers. Now, Rav Liashiv's style of learning if you, you talk to people who knew him from early on, mm-hmm. the Einstein learning was that he, whenever he was learning the sugya, he tried to cheshbon, he tried to calculate 
all the possible nafkeminas yeah. that come out of the sugya. So therefore, whenever you came with a practical shaila to him, he knew where to tap into the sugya in order to solve the shaila. Mm-hmm. And that helped this Ravavidan when he kept asking shailas about the army, and he finally found his address. For decades since then, he was asking him shailas about the army. Mm-hmm. He put out a sefer called Shabbatu Moed Betzal. Mm-hmm. It's filled with Pesachim from Eliashev and from Abisham Zalman, which is a bit y- unique because usually these svarim are written by the Tilumira Bonim. And here you have a whole safer on army shilas. Very interesting. And we're, we're the Psakim Rav Yashav and Rav Zalman. So he told us many interesting stories. I'm not going to drag you into all of them. One of the interesting things was that I remembered as a child, I heard from him that they had to describe to Rav Yashav how a tank looks, like an army tank. Yeah. Rav Yashav did not grow up in, a, in an army base, right? He didn't know the... So, but what interesting was, he says that we had to explain to him, but he hopped on so fast that he became like a mumcha in, in a few seconds about how a tank looks. And the, the issues over there were Shilas of Erevin because the people used to live in tanks, right? They, they still do. They still do. They By the way, you see these pictures of the tank. on combat or anything. An arm, it's dangerous to get out in the combat zone, so they stay inside. So they sleep and they eat. Everything yeah. is in a tank. Correct. So there are a lot of shadows of Erevin, what you're allowed to take out of the tank, and what's a Mokum Ptur, and what's a Carmelis, and what's a... We're not, we're not, I'm not talking about in a combat zone. I mean, we're talking about what training, or sometimes guarding the border, or whatever. Even, maybe even a combat zone as well. Okay. But in any yeah. case, an interesting title, we're coming up to Hanukkah soon, so one of the interesting shilas was that if it's called a house because you eat and sleep there, mm. so what is the door? The mm. door is the chimney, actually, meaning it's the... Hold on, you know a lot of IDF tanks are unique in that they have an exit in the turret in the top, right. but that's all tanks have that. They have it in the back, in the, the lower part, so they can right. escape. It's not going to be, you're not going to get shot. So, so I, therefore, so if you're brisk, you have to light up both <laughs> entrances. Right. So I think he was talking about a tank that had only in the top, right? right. So they had a whole shila. Is that considered... The Petach, if that's where they have to light. But he told us many stories of Ryashiv's Psakim. I'll end off with one thing very interesting. He said they once brought a Mossad agent mm-hmm. in training to Rav Ryashiv. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, Mossad, they, they work undercover under a different assumed identity. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it involves Isur Daraisa. I'm not going to get into why, but you can imagine there are Isur Daraisa involved. And Ryashiv said that in training, you're not allowed to do these Isur Daraisa because it's not Pikuach Nefesh. Once you do go undercover, then you're allowed to do these averis because of Kuach Nefesh. And he said that he was shocked that he sat with this Mossad agent and Rabbi Yashav Mamish like went into all the... He says, I, who have an army background, didn't know as much as Rabbi Yashav knew about what the Mossad does. It seems that other people were consulting with him about what's going on in the Mossad. And he had a definite grasp what was going on in the Mossad. And he was directing this Mossad agent, what's Motor and what's also. Just before we finish, I want to say a story, but before I get your thoughts on it, just to remind me about talking about tanks. So I have a cousin who was, you know, is close to Rosh Weiss in, in, in Ramot, and he often helps him on, you know, he gives him a strangle or whatever it is in the shul. He's there about Balabos in the shul. And he helped Rosh Weiss quite a few years ago, helped him on with a coat or whatever it was. But you saw he had uh, dust on his chin or his reckle, and he, and he brushed it off. And he said, because you helped me, I'll tell you why I got that dust. He says that uh, the, the IDF has a new tank or armored personnel carrier, and they had Shilas about it. I don't know what the Shilas were, maybe the similar thing, right? And he said, I went along there, and in order to get an idea of what it was, I had to crawl into it. So I got dust, got dust, dust as well. So there's the Mamshik of a Rosh is, is a Rosh crawling into tanks. 
But let me finish. I want to get your thoughts about this. And this is an amazing story that I wrote a few years ago. True story based in the in, in the Kippur War. And has stayed with me ever since. In fact, I, I quoted it unknowingly. I was in London over Yom Tov when the, obviously, this terrible Sunchus Torah attacks. It's actually Shemina Terrace in London sitting at the Sukkah. And I, I told this story, not knowing that it was all too relevant again. This is the story. In 1973, when the Rabbonim of the Rabbanut, the, chief, the, the, the military chief Rabbanut, was responsible for the northern part of the country, was Rabbi Israel Ariel. Now, he came from Mishpachas Ariel's of a leading rabbinic family from the Datilumi sector, and all the brothers of, you know, people who've next to the coastal, there used to be, maybe there still is, the Golden Menorah, that was one of the brothers. That's him, made it from uh, Machon Amikdash. So after the war ended, so obviously one of the major jobs of the chief rabbinate there of the army is as a Chavar Kedisha. And what happened was, they had to work for weeks to try and gather on. And on the Golan Heights, there was enormous tank battles that raged. The fighting was over the whole heights, and many people lost their lives. And many Agunas were there. We know, uh, we mentioned another episode of Rav Yosef, was muttering almost a thousand Agunas based on that. And there was a terrible shyness, and the, the losses were extraordinary. And what happened to Yisrael Ariel says, we gathered together, we finished after weeks gathering all the bodies and giving them a kvur, bringing to the cave of Yisrael. And then what happened, he said, having gone over the whole heights, I knew that there were lots and lots of over a thousand Syrian war dead. These were enemy tank uh, gunners and crew, tank crewmen from the battles there. And over 12, 1300 of them were lying all over the place. And he said, okay, we've got to bury them. He said, who's going to volunteer? And the Chevra Kadisha, the Rabbon, the, 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 from the Rabbanut says, no, you imagine that, the being in the broiling Golan Heights sun, do that. It's already a, a mysterious nefesh to do that for, for Jews, to start doing that for these enemies who've just done it. He says, no way. He said, we have a chance over here to fulfill a posuk in, in Yechezkel. And, and he told them, and he said, I'll, I'll share that with you, but first I want volunteers. And he got a big crew together, a whole lot of volunteers together, and they worked for a week or two, and they got the bodies together. They have 12, 1,300 of them. And they got them together and they presented, I imagine they identified the, the Syrian crewmen had you know, dog tags from the army identification disks, and they gave them to the Syrians under the Assad regime, a murderous regime. It said, out of the whole list of 12, 1300, we said we want 300 back. He says, those were the Alawites, the, the family of Bashar al-Assad, right? Hafez uh, al-Assad, whoever it's, the, fa- the father. And he says, that's who they wanted back. And to cut a long story short, he says, afterwards, he said to them, this is why I wanted to do it. And he brought out a postdoc. He said, I'm going to call a news conference, okay, for the leading media outlets in the world. And this is going to be a kiyom of the postdoc. And he said, and he found it in, in, in the postdoc in, in Yechezkel. He talk, talks about the Mechemes Goig. He says, Bayoimahu, etain le Goig, mokoim shem keva b'Yisrael. On that day, after the war of Goig and Magog, I'll give a burial place, you know, in Eretz Yisrael for, for Goig. And where's that going to be? Kidmas Hayom. It's the valley which is in front of the sea. And Ariel said to turn to everyone, he said, Look, we're in And this is it. How do I know? Because the Unklas translates Kidmas Hayam means Kidmas Yam Ginloisar. In front of Yam is what the Gemara calls the Kinneret. So there's going to be a battle. They're going to fall next to the Kinneret. We're going to bury them. And he says, this is why I called a press conference, because the Pasuk says, he says, they're going to, that all the people of the land of Eretz are going to bury them. It's going to be for them a honor. This is going to bring glory to Am Yisrael, the fact that they've buried the enemy dead. And that's what Rashi says. If you look there, he says, look, Rashi says, because they say, these Am Yisrael, they bury 
their enemies. And he said, I called the press conference, and indeed, that was a cure because when Mohammed Gogamogoy, it's a remarkable story because this was a man living with the Amunah that we, we that there's it, it is Iqfasat and there's and that these wars have a meaning, especially the wars happening in Eretz Yisrael, and we're part of a, a, a process over here. Rabbi what do you make of that? Beautiful story. I just want to point out a disclaimer. Rav Volba wrote a, a beautiful sefer, which many people don't know about. It's called Ben Sheshes La'asor. What does that mean? And not Ben Kessel La'asor, yeah. Ben Sheshes La'asor. Yeah. It was lectures that he gave in the kibbutzim, secular kibbutzim, between the Six-Day War and Yom Kippur War. Ben Sheshes La'asor. And in that, he lays down the basic shkafic principles of Haredi Jewry in those lectures. And one of the nikudas that he brings out over there is that there's a basic... The fundamental idea that we believe in is that we do not have the capability of interpreting events. That means until we have a Novi who will tell us exactly what the Psukim meant, we don't have the power to do that. And it's interesting because that is, you know, our Risaal comes from the Tilumi community, and they do that often. This Likuda, they do that often, like taking a Pasuk and saying, this is what the Pasuk is talking about. And our Ashkafa, according to our Volva, is that we don't have an Ovi. It could be. I'm not saying it's not, but we can't say that definitely. And I would just add to that, that there's, even within our world, we have the Chavetz Chaim already famously saying, because back to the Vilna Gaon, about, right. you know, the events of the 20th century. Right. General, Indeed, the general Tkufa is the Ikvesinamishikha, right. the, the period before Moshiach comes. And certainly this is not some war in the 18th century in Tsarist Russia. Right. This is what we're seeing. It's hard to see this as anything but, you know, the end of the Ikvesinamishikha, this it, times in which extraordinary things are happening. And I think that is itself, the, what the Chavaz Chaim says, is itself a comfort that nothing, even the tragedy that we're living through over here, and there's so many hundreds of thousands of Jews are living in danger, endangering their lives on the front line. As we said, there's a chizuk that, that it's not for nothing. And, and indeed, we're seeing... Us to Mashiach, to the Amen. Amen.